Boy, did we nearly freeze to death or what at sunrise? Woo, man, 29 degrees sunrise service. That was something else. Only, only real men came out to that one. Or crazy people. <laughs> All right. We are in Mark chapter 14, and we were kind of tracking nicely there with the season of Lent. And uh, now that we're in the season of Eastertide, we're going to feel we're backing up a little bit. But that is necessary for us to understand this major portion of the Scriptures, because in, verse, in chapters 14 and 15, you have the heart of what is known as the Passion, where Jesus pours out His heart, pours out His prayers, pours out His life. Uh, on his in his death on the cross where he's betrayed and denied and abandoned and we're going to be able to see the meaning of what he did for us during those times but today following the anointing at bethany which is as we have already seen a magnificent text teaches us a lot about how we should in fact enjoy our lord jesus christ we come to this institution of the lord's supper in Mark 14, verse 12, and we're going to read through 26. Before we do, let's just talk for a minute about the meaning of, of meals in the Scriptures. You know, in the Old Testament, if you were to pick the, well, in the New Testament, if you were to pick the one big event that kind of is the tipping point or the crucial moment, I suppose you'd, you'd probably put the cross and the resurrection together and say that, that's where it is. There's the heart of the New Testament historically. That's the event that saves us, that delivers us, the event that we regularly celebrate. You know, if crosses on the walls and we sing hymns like the one we just sang about the resurrection, that's the seminal event that makes us who we are. Those are the events that makes us God's people. Well, if you asked our brothers and sisters uh, a couple thousand years ago, or, uh, yeah, a couple thousand years ago, what was the event, they, they would have said the exodus. And they would have said, you know, the deliverance from Egypt... The Passover, where the death angel passed over, uh, passed over the, the homes of the Israelites and the dividing the Red Sea and so on. But, but the deliverance out of Egypt would have been the seminal event that defined them as a people. That's what made them as a people. Now, they might have tied in Mount Sinai with that, you know, the giving of the law. They may even have tied in, you know, the, uh, the conquering of the land and crossing the Jordan. But for sure, they, they would have said the Exodus. And you remember, I'm sure, from our studies a few years ago at Exodus, uh, that God in chapter 12 commanded the Passover meal. So he didn't just pass over that first time, but then there was a Passover meal. And he said to them, you are to celebrate this. Every year at this time, you're to hold the Passover. So why should we hold the Passover? Well... Because you're to remember who you are. And you're to remember what I did for you. And you're to celebrate it. You're to take time off. And they would take a whole week off. It was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It was seven days plus the Passover. And you're to do this every year. And every male, 12 years of age and older, is to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it because the Passover had to be celebrated uh, within Jerusalem once they had the land. It had to be celebrated in the city. And it had to be celebrated in a home. And if you were a single, you'd line up with somebody else's family because you'd be in a family, in a home. It had to be under roof. And, and it was uh, later on, of course, in Jerusalem. So it was a very important thing. If you look at the history of the rise and fall of 
Israel many times through various leaders in the kings, you'll find that when Israel is in decline and God gives them a king who's restoring Israel to their, their greatness, take uh, Hezekiah, for example, or, or a little bit later, Josiah, a little, you know, good little king Josiah, eight years of age, becomes the king and, and implements these radical transformations, starts smashing uh, idols and Asherah poles in, in, in his teen years. This, this young man just had a tremendous vision for the righteousness of God in, in his nation. And you'll notice one thing they always do is they restore the Passover. That's a sign that Israel is being restored, God's favor is returning, is that they are entering into intimate fellowship and celebration about the great works of God. And you find this also in revival in New Testament era. When the church is being revived, you find often it it happens around communion services. For example, um, uh, in Great Britain, during the great years of revival, during the years of George Whitfield, which had been the, the early 18th century, in Scotland, for example, you'd find that those revivals often happen on the hillsides where they would have these communion festivals every quarter. And that's when the revival was breaking out. It was around the celebration, the feasting of the great works of God that define us as a people. That's the reason that what we're studying today is so important because God has always marked us out and kept us through what we call the ordinary means of grace. If I can use that language, ordinary means of grace. That means how do we just regularly, ordinarily receive and experience God's grace toward us? And the church has historically said it's the word and prayer and the sacraments. And uh, for those of you who are evangelicals, I can say often for us it's the word and prayer. And uh, we need help from the rest of the church to remind us that it's the word and prayer and the sacraments. Because we're going to see here that Jesus came at a very significant time in Israel's history to provide for us the seminal events that make us who we are. It was the Passover feast. So he came at that very feast and he is going to replace that feast with another feast. And he tells us, just like God told the Israelites, do this in remembrance of me. So if they were to keep the Passover, we must also keep the Passover. And we're going to see how important it is for our, for our own maturity and for our own experience of God's presence. So something that many Christian people and, of course, non-Christian people leave out of their lives are the great celebrations that define who we are, remind us who we are, remind the world who we are, and draw us nearer to the Lord in the experience of his grace. That's the reason this text in front of us is so important. Jesus obviously thinks it's important as we will see in these very first verses of this text. Let's take a look at it. Mark chapter 14. This would be verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city. And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, 
Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take eat, uh, take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, let's look at these first five verses, 12 through 16, and we're going to see this, that Jesus carefully planned the communion meal. The time was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've seen from Exodus 12, this was intentional on his part to say that what he is giving us in the Lord's Supper is a replacement for the Passover. I don't think there's any question about it, at least in my mind, that the Last Supper was the Passover feast. And he was redefining the whole meaning of Passover. This is radical stuff, guys. It's hard for us to imagine. I mean, I suppose we could imagine that someone would come and claim that they were going to redefine the Lord's Supper in some way. We'd go, you know, uh, sacrilege. Well, most of the, the Jewish people felt the same way because they didn't understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover. The Passover was that which uh, was the exodus that took them out of bondage into freedom. And Jesus Christ is the one that takes us out of the bondage of sin and now the bondage of guilt and condemnation into the freedom of innocence before God and in the freedom of righteousness. And so he comes at the, this very special time, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, to define who he is. And we see that in verse 12. Then in verse 13, we see who the guests are. The guests are the disciples. So you want to know what's the meaning of this this thing we're going to talk about, well, look at the historical context. It's the Passover feast. You want to know who it's for? It's for the disciples. So the Passover feast is not for the world. The Passover feast is for disciples. In the same sense, the Lord's Supper is not for the world. It's for disciples. And it's very important that we, we keep that straight, uh, that we know who's invited and who's not invited. And uh, you're not more uh, gracious because you invite everybody. You'd be more, more gracious than Jesus. Jesus invites his disciples. It's for those for whom the Passover is intended. It's for those for whom the Lord's Supper is applied. And so uh, if you go to church and you haven't yet declared yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should not take the Lord's Supper. Now, to be a little bit more narrow about it, uh, if you are a believer, but you go into another church and you're not invited, I suggest you not take it there either. 
All churches don't have what we call an open table for all denominations. Why don't you do what the people who are hosting the worship service tell us is their intent in inviting us to the table? So regardless of what my theology is, if I go into a church uh, and I'm not invited to the table by the leadership of that church, I don't go to the table. I don't make my own declarations. I let it be interpreted to me. But Jesus' intent is that all those are his disciples. This means, of course, in human terms, the way we handle it in churches, uh, we should have uh, people who are professing their faith publicly, making their declarations known, who are living a life that shows that their faith, their, uh, their uh, profession of faith is credible, and people who are then received by the leadership of, of the church. So in the Presbyterian church, everyone who joins our church is examined by the elders. And the elders are, deter- are it's their job to hear these professions of faith, to see if there's anything in the person's life that would make it obvious that they were not consistent in their profession. And if not, then they receive them into the church. And, and then we're admitted to the table. When we have communion here, uh, we invite all those who profess their faith in Jesus Christ and who have joined a church anywhere. But we do say, join a church that has made your profession known. You've declared yourself, just like these disciples, they declared themselves. They followed Jesus physically. It was very obvious that, that they were following him. It should be so with the disciples of Jesus. Now, obviously, as we're going to see in just a moment, there was one of these disciples who wasn't a real believer, wasn't there? His name was Judas. And churches today have people who aren't real believers in them. But I guarantee you this, Peter didn't know it. Peter had a bad habit of cutting people's ears off uh, who threatened Jesus. And uh, if he had known who Judas was, I suppose he'd have cut his head off. Uh, I think Peter was actually trying to cut the other man's head off. He was just a bad shot. <laughs> Real bad shot. Whoops, missed. Lump the ear off. Uh, but Peter would have handled Judas, I'm quite sure, if he had known. So Judas was um, a hypocrite, big time hypocrite, uh, and a good one. <laughs> because nobody knew. Uh, even after the instructions Jesus gave here, we'll see, they, they still didn't figure it out. Uh, so Judas had them all fooled. And there are people in the church today who have us fooled. Well, uh, the rest of the elders, the rest of the disciples, the apostles here are not moral policemen. Uh, they're, ju- they're just elders. And if Judas had made himself known, it would have been their job to exclude him from the Passover feast. But Judas didn't make himself known. And uh, that's not our responsibility. We only take what's given to us. But when it is made known to us, then, then the leaders in your church must take responsibility for determining who should come to the table. And it is the job of the leadership of the church to explain regularly who should come to the table. It's the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who those, As our liturgy says it, uh, those who have put their trust in Christ and desire his help that they may lead a holy life. Uh, they're the ones who are welcomed. But our fencing of the table, so to speak, our... Uh, Putting boundaries around the table are verbal boundaries, just as it is here. And Judas chose to be a hypocrite and violate the verbal boundaries. And he pretended to be a disciple when he really in his heart was not. But you'll see here it's intended for disciples uh, because they're the ones for whom God has delivered them out of Egypt. And they're the ones for whom Christ has died and been raised from the dead. So it's for the guests, verse 13. Now, verse 14 through 16, you get this remarkable uh, passage, well, actually beginning with 13, where Jesus is giving these instructions. They're very specific, and obviously Jesus is in charge here. Uh, we don't understand all of this. We don't know if he had prearranged with the owner of that house or whether it was just completely miraculous. But it seems to be at least 
in part miraculous because Jesus said there'll be a man carrying water. How in the world did Jesus tell him, you know, when the sun gets to this point, you carry water and show my... No, uh, there's something, obviously, something uh, miraculous about it if the whole thing is not miraculous. But Jesus designs it. Jesus sets it up. And something that's very important for us about the Passover is to realize God designed it. Something very important for us about the... Is there a bell going off in here? Is it my head? It was. It was. Did it just go away to you too? Good. Yeah. I mean, at 56, I begin to wonder sometimes, you know. Or maybe, maybe God's calling me home, you know, or something like that. Okay. Here we go. Uh, I've had strange things happen to me, you know, during Amen Bible study. One time I was teaching and I had a kidney stone. And I thought I was having awful back pains. <laughs> you know, Bill Weber comes up to me afterwards and says, you look bad. <laughs> you need to go to the doctor. So I never know what's going to happen to me on the Amen Bible study. Uh, so here Jesus is obviously in control. He's setting this whole thing up. Uh, and he, he has them in this upper room. I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem, but there's a place you can go now that, that they think could have been a place like it. Well, who knows? I doubt it was the place, the actual original upper room. But he has this large upper room where they're to be together. Where they're to be under roof. Where they're to keep the Passover inside Jerusalem as it was ordered in his own day. They're going to keep it rightly so they understand the real meaning of Passover. And they keep the Lord's command to keep this feast regularly um, before them so that they remember what God has done for them. So Jesus is intentionally setting up. He is planning it. He has planned the communion meal. We're going to see in the rest of this, just as he was very intentional, in fact, even miraculous in his intention to set up the Passover meal. He's going to set it up as a communion meal, the Lord's Supper, in the same, with the same intentionality, which ought to give us some pause this morning about how we each treat the communion meal. Well, let's go on to verses 17 through 21, and here's what we see. Jesus clearly understands the communion meal. And I say this because uh, he, we're going to see that he... he there, there's evidence, clear evidence here that Jesus goes through the entire Passover meal, which is, uh, if, if you've not studied that before or you don't have a Jewish background, is, is uh, quite a sequence. Uh, the food is brought and certain things are said. The food is taken away and the food is brought back again. And there are several cups of wine and it, it, it can get uh, it, it's a complicated liturgy. The Passover meal is actually a liturgy, and it's followed straight through. And you see evidence of, evidences of it here. Uh, those who have records from the Talmud and other things about the Passover meal see that that's exactly what Jesus is following. But he understands it. In verses 17 and 18, he predicts his own betrayal. He says, while they were reclining at the table, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, this is a biblical fulfillment or a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. For example, if you will look back in Psalm 41, and this will be on page 846. Here, David is offering this psalm. And as David often does, he speaks of his enemies. And look at verse 7. This is Psalm 41, 7. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, 
A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. That is to say, his friends wish him dead. Verse 9, this is the key. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. He says, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So this is what's happening. Jesus, as he does when he's on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22, Psalm of David. The Psalms of David are just pervasively in the mind and heart of Jesus Christ. And he fulfills them and quotes them at will. And here he's certainly making reference to Psalm 41. And he's saying this is going to be fulfilled in this way that one of you is going to betray me. And then notice in verses 19 and 20, he identifies his betrayer. They were sad in verse 19 and they said to him, surely not I. You see how blind they were to... Judas's hypocrisy. The first question they had was themselves. And here's here's how it is, guys. I mean, if we were told that one of us was going to turn out to be a betrayer and a royal hypocrite, if we were honest, we'd probably the first question would be, is it I? I mean, am I the one that's going to screw up? I mean, you know, down deep inside, we all know how vulnerable we are. And these guys did, too. They knew that they were in a very profound moment. And they knew of the wickedness of their own hearts. They knew of the weakness of their own flesh. And these poor guys, every one of them, feels like it could possibly be them. Of course, we know that Peter did deny the Lord three times. You see how weak he is. But Peter didn't betray him. The difference is Peter came back and repented. Peter found the way of repentance. Judas never did. So you see that they're asking whether it is I. And it just seems to me to be a very honest question. But Jesus... Uh, answers in verse 20. He says, It is uh, one of the twelve, the one who dips bread into the bowl with me. So he's saying, Look, here's who it is. It's one who dips his bread in the bowl with me. Well, gentlemen, they all dip bread in the bowl. That was part of the Passover feast. The, the bitter herbs come, and the stewed fruit, and the bread, and the lamb. And of course, the bitter herbs, you know, would represent the bitterness that they had while in slavery in Egypt. The stewed fruit it looked like a sort of a clay-colored mixture that reminded them of the bricks. And they would take the bread and they would dip it into the bowl of the stewed fruit. And uh, that was a regular part of the Passover feast. And he said, it will be one who shares this fellowship with me, uh, who betrays him. It will be one who's close to him and one who is his friend. So he identifies his betrayer, but he only says it's one of the twelve. And then he makes this profound statement, which is important for us to remember. He says, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. In other words, uh, God has ordained that the son of man die on a cross. If we have problems with God ordaining evil things in this world, just think about the most evil thing that ever happened. That was Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross by wicked people. And we're told by Peter and Acts and in other places, God ordained that. 
So if you really want the, the greatest mystery of God and evil in the world, look at the scriptures and see that God is the one who ordained that his son would die on a cross. There's the most wicked event. God ordained it. And here he says, the son of man will go as it is written about him. As Isaiah 53 said, he will suffer. He will die. Uh, he will be despised. So that will happen as God predicted. But he says, woe to the one through whom it's accomplished. If you look in verse 21, he says, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, here you get both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You say, that's not fair. God ordained it. Yeah, it's fair. Because we made a choice in view of our own motives. God ordains everything. We still make choices in view of our own motives. That is the mystery of God's ordination. That is the mystery of his sovereignty. That is the mystery of predestination. That it doesn't rob us neither of our moral freedom nor of our responsibility. They're both true. Some people take one of these truths and cancel the other one. Some people will say, you know, God is sovereign, and that means that man doesn't have any responsibility. That's not what the Bible teaches. Some people will say, man's responsible, and therefore God can't be sovereign. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a mystery, which means you can't comprehend it. All you can do is apprehend it, go after it. You can't get your mind around this one. But God is so great that he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, and he has made us completely responsible for all of our actions. Try that one out for size. It'll blow your head off. And here it is. He says, look, God in his grace toward his people has ordained the Passover lamb and has ordained the Son of Man to come and fulfill that Passover lamb uh, uh, symbol. But the man who has done it, woe to him. God's judgment will fall upon him. So, uh, indeed, as Psalm 41 says, uh, God and his servants will be avenged. And God will be avenged. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. Just as Psalm 41 said. It's true with you too. Uh, God has ordained that we will suffer. We are suffering. But woe be to the one who causes us to suffer for the sake of the cross. We will be avenged. You do not have to avenge yourself. And your patience and your love for your enemies is the greatest test of your belief in God's taking care of business in the end. The greatest profession you can make about your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ coming back to make things right is that you don't have to make things right. You don't have to avenge yourself. You really trust the Lord to do that. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man will go, as it has been written of him. But woe be to the man who betrays the Son of Man. The followers of Christ will go, as it has been written to us. But woe be to the one who persecutes the children of God. Uh, and that's exactly what he's saying. So Jesus understands the communion meal, that the communion meal is a Passover. And guess who the lamb is? It's the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one who's going to be betrayed. He is the one who's going to be put to death. He understands it completely. One can only imagine the moral courage and the profound love of a man who would set up a meal like this to establish his own death in a very gruesome way. Well, let's come to uh, verses 22 through 25, and let's notice that he institutes the communion meal. And uh, what you'll see here is, first of all, the bread is his body. He took the bread. He gave thanks. 
He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take. This is my body. Gentlemen, that's the very same thing we do in the church today. We take the bread. We give thanks for it. We break it. We give it to the disciples and we say, take and eat. This is my body. Why do we do that religiously? Because that's the way Jesus instituted it. One of the most important things to realize about the Lord's Supper when you take it is that Jesus instituted it. He gave it to us and he told us, do this in remembrance of me. So the bread is his body. Now, the Thanksgiving for the bread took place at a certain part in the meal. You started off by bringing the food out and the youngest boy in the family would say, why is this night different from any other night? And the father would explain the Passover. He would explain what happened in Egypt and what happened in the Passover meal and what happened in the Exodus and what happened after that. And he would give the, the redemptive story. And I have a question to ask you. Do you have moments when you give the redemptive story to your children, to your grandchildren? Do they hear you reciting the great things of God and talking about them? Well, if you have a hard time with that, the advantage uh, in uh, the Old Testament was once a year, every father was going to sit down with his children and explain why this night is different from every other night. And then uh, there would be uh, a couple of glasses of wine that would be blessed and they would drink them. Then the food would be brought back out and they would eat it, as we've already seen. They would dip their bread into the, into the fruit and they would eat the herbs and they would eat the Passover meal. Then they would, thank the, they would thank the Lord for the bread. They would bless the bread. And that's exactly the point in the meal where Jesus is doing this. He's taking the bread and saying something now totally different from anything that's been said before. This bread is my body. Broken. For you. Wow. This is new. And obviously remembered by Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. It's in all the, uh, the gospel accounts where uh, Jesus shows us the meaning of bread. And then he takes the cup. This cup, there were four cups. This was the third cup. It was after the meal. And uh, in the liturgy, you'd have the third cup. There would be some more singing and psalms. And then you'd have a fourth cup. We'll see that he speaks of the fourth cup as well. But here's the third cup. Uh, and he raises the cup at the end of the meal to bless it. And he, he, lifts, he takes the cup, as we see here. He gives thanks for it, as was done in his own day. And he offers it to them and they, and they drank from it. But he adds some words that had never been said before. He says, this cup or this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Talks about the cup as his own blood. And he said, then he speaks of the fourth cup. I will not drink it again, a drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. He says uh, in another text, uh, the, uh, Luke adds the words, I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Or I think Matthew adds those words. So he's basically saying about the fourth cup, which was the last one. I'm not going to drink it until I'll see you again in the kingdom of God. So we're still waiting in a sense for the fourth cup. And that's part of the meaning of the communion, as we'll get to in just a moment. But you see how Jesus took these two elements that were in the Passover feast and he, it, there were many elements in the Passover feast, but he took these two and specifically applied them to himself, and he replaced the Passover meal with the Lord's Supper. Now, let's ask some important questions about the Lord's Supper. And this is important for us as we go to the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate our Passover, 
and do it rightly? How shall we do it? Well, first of all, we need to know what it is. First thing that we notice, of course, is that this is a memorial. It is a Passover meal. He says uh, in Luke twenty two nineteen, do this in remembrance of me. So if the Passover remembered God who passed over uh, the death angel, passed over the homes of the Israelites and they were to do it to remember the Exodus. Here he's saying, do this to remember me and what I've done for you. So, first of all, remember that the Lord's Supper is a memorial. Now, there are some traditions that believe that the Passover is a memorial only. And this actually has good historical precedent. A man named Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss reformer uh, in the 16th century, basically said that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a memorial feast uh, in which we bear witness uh, to the Lord of our love for him. So we just simply remember. But that's not all it is, I would like to suggest. I'd like to disagree with Mr. Zwingli and, and others who believe it's only a memorial. It is also be a communion meal. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. This is a very important passage for us to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And I'd like to have you think about this. In 1 Corinthians 10, of verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul, this is page 1856, 1857, uh, Paul is talking about our fleeing from idolatry and from the, the feasts of the, the pagan festivals. And he says in verse 14, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Look at this. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. Look at the rich meaning that's here in this text for us. We're told that when we take the, the bread and the cup, we are participating. The word is koinonia. We're fellowshipping. We're particip participating with whom? Participating with Christ. So it is a fellowship. The word communion just means fellowship. It's a koinonia meal. It's a participation meal. So you're actually doing something in the present. You're not just remembering the past. This is the point. You remember the past. But you're doing something right now, spiritually, really, with Jesus Christ. You are communing with Him. Here's basically what's going on. I, and I speak as a, you know, I speak as a Presbyterian. I know we've got Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and Orthodox and uh, whatever, Church of Christ and all kinds of stuff here. So we have different perspectives. And, and of course, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, so you can filter that out. But I think I'm just speaking here about the Bible, saying that this is a participation. So here's what it says, I think, to a lot of scholars. When we come to the table of the Lord, we're actually coming to a meal. We don't have the whole Passover meal in front of us. We don't have the, the lamb. We don't have the bitter herbs. We don't have the fruit. We've just got the bread and the cup. We've only got the two elements that Jesus used in the Passover meal for us to remember. Now, there were agape feasts, love feasts. You pick that up in First Corinthians, where the church came together and they had a real meal. And at the end of which, seemingly, they then celebrated with the bread and the cup and went through the Lord's Supper. 
We don't typically do that, have a full meal and then celebrate the elements. We just have the two elements only, okay? But here's what it is. We're coming to table together. So the reason the communion table itself is important is that's a place where a meal is served. And when you have the pastor, whether it be myself or somebody else, who is leading us through the liturgy, he, in a sense, is we might say he's hosting the meal, but he's really not. Christ is the host. This is the point. When Jesus told his disciples to prepare the Passover feast, he was having meal with them. He was having table fellowship with them. That's the reason it had to be his friends. Because in the Middle East, you don't eat with someone who's not your friend. If you eat with someone, it's a public declaration. This is my friend. So meals in the, new, in the in Middle East mean something different than what it means to us. We could casually eat a hamburger with anybody. Not in the Middle East. You eat a meal, it's, it's sacramental in and of itself. You're saying, I'm your friend. That's the reason it's so weird in Psalm 41. The very one who eats with me will betray me. That's a betrayal to eat with someone and stab them in the back. That's what Psalm 41 is talking about. And that's what happened at Passover. It was a betrayal to eat with Jesus and then stab him in the back. And so it would be with us to eat at the table and then stab him in the back. It's a betrayal. So, but what's happening at the table is Jesus is again hosting the meal. Now, in traditions, uh, particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition, there's a strong sense of what they call, and if I butcher this, my Roman Catholic friends, you tell me, but the, the real presence. Roman Catholics will tell you what, something they really care about in, in Mass is the real presence. And that, that's the reason they say that the, the body really becomes the body of Christ, uh, the, the, uh, the bread really becomes the body of Christ, and the wine really becomes the blood of Christ because we're, we're wanting the real presence. Now, we may speak to that in just a moment. But here's what uh, I believe the, the, the point of his presence is. His presence is vouchsafed by the very fact he's having meal with you. It's not whether he's in the bread or in the cup. He's there. And as we say, he's uh, spiritually present with us. By his spirit, he is there. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the meal. Why did he ordain the meal? So he could be at table fellowship with us year after year after year. That's the festival. We're going to meet with God at table. Now, we meet with him in worship when he preaches, when the word is preached or read to us, when we offer our prayers. He's there with us. We have his presence. But then he takes us to the table to say, guess what? You're my friend. Wow. Friend of Jesus. So we don't just bow down as you would in the mosque. We bow down and then we come to table. It's not just reverence and fear. It is reverence and fear and awe. But it's reverence and fear and awe and intimacy. And we come to the table. So we have his presence at the table and he's hosting the table. Now, that's what it means. I I would tend to say uh, above almost anything else in the communion meal, it just means come to table fellowship with Jesus Christ and be declared his friend again and be reminded that he he basically gave his body and his blood so that you'd forever be his friend. Uh, That's what it means when he says, don't you realize that there's a participation in the blood of Christ, don't you realize there's a participation, a fellowship in the, in the body and the blood of Christ? So that's what 1 Corinthians 10 is teaching us. Now, thirdly, it's a Thanksgiving meal. And you can stay right there in 1 Corinthians because we're going to refer to this in another text again. But he says it's a Thanksgiving meal. See what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. We just read it. He says, uh, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. 
The word is Eucharisteo. I give thanks from which we get the word Eucharist. That's the reason we call it the Eucharist. It's a thanksgiving. So you could call it communion, which is fellowship or participation, koinonia. You can call it the Lord's Supper because the Lord instituted it. You can call it the Mass because Mass comes from the Latin word, which simply means to dismiss because the catechumens, those children who had not yet been qualified for communion, were dismissed right before the communion. And so they just kept the word. It's the Mass, the dismissal. Uh, So that word's perfectly legitimate. Or you can call it a Eucharist. It's a Thanksgiving. And gentlemen, so often uh, the mood that you'll feel in some Eucharists is a mood not of thanksgiving, but a mood of grief. Uh, Gentlemen, you must remember that although Jesus gave the Last Supper before he died and before he was raised from the dead, he's already died now and he is raised from the dead. Don't forget that when you celebrate communion. He gave this for a perpetual feast that marked out not just his crucifixion, but his resurrection as well. So we're thankful. We come to table fellowship and express our thanks. And it ought to be in our hearts and in our songs and in our attitudes. We're, we're to come back to the Lord's table no matter what has happened to you in that stinking week that you just had. You nearly lost your shirt and your business. And your best friend stabbed you in the back. You come to communion and say, the Lord loves me. He invites me to fellowship with him. I'm his friend. Hey, you may not be my friend. I'm telling you, I know somebody in high places. I'm thankful. So you let your heart rejoice and your heart picks up even on the most solemn uh, communion you can think of. Even Monday, Thursday night. We're thankful. And so was Jesus Christ thankful for the Passover and what God had done. So it's, it's a Thanksgiving meal. And fourthly, it's a sacrament. Now, this one's a little tricky. If we try to come up with biblical proof, and this is the reason I cite the Westminster Confession of Faith. When Presbyterians have a doctrine and they can't prove it, they just cite the Westminster Confession of Faith. (laughs) That's actually true. The word is sacramentum. It's a Latin word. In the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament, okay? You with me? In the Latin, sacramentum translates mysterion, which means mystery. So, it is a mystery. Now, mystery, mysterion in the Greek, we translate in the English mystery. You'll find the mystery talks about a lot of things, but Christ is a mystery. Christ in us is a mystery. The inclusion of the Gentiles is a mystery. The gospel is a mystery. So these are the mysteries that, once again, you can't comprehend. You can only apprehend it. Sacramentum translated that and then grew into another idea. Sacramentum was also used in the Roman legions for when you pledge your fealty to the emperor. And you take your vow when you enter the service and you pledge your loyalty to the empire and to the emperor. It's a sacrament. So in the church, of course, that same sort of idea began to develop. And it's legitimate. It's just that I don't have a text for it. <laughs> but certainly when we, when we come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord has pledged his fealty to us in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's only right we pledge our fealty to him in the sacrament. So it's a mutual bonding 
a mutual commitment in the sacrament. And I think it's perfectly legitimate, not just because of the Roman legions, but because of what we see happening in the meal itself. Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 41, talking about his friends. Friends are loyal to one another. When Jesus had the Passover feast, he was declaring his loyalty to us. Peter that night declared his loyalty, didn't he? He said, Lord, these other doofuses, they may deny you, but I'll never do that. Now, Peter was wrong, but he was right in trying to declare his fealty. And we would be right, too. So it is a bond and a commitment. And notice in 1 Corinthians 10, it is a bond to one another because in verse 17, he says, there is one loaf. So we who are many are one body. So the communion is the Presbyterian liturgy actually says it's a bond of our union with him and with each other in the body of Christ. So in communion, we are told in first Corinthians 11, if you turn your page, that we should examine the body. We should discern the body of Christ. Some have said, well, is he talking about the body of Jesus Christ, his physical body, or is he talking about discerning the body of Christ? I think it's both. So when you come into communion, you realize that we're experiencing the bond of real fellowship. Now you say, how do you have fellowship with a bunch of louses like this? Well, first of all, point yourself louse number one and realize everyone else is asking the same question about you. And then you realize, you know what? That is the amazing thing about it. That God, by his grace, is allowing sinners to come together and be unified. Look, look at the rest of the world. What do sinners do? Kill each other. Just look at your world. We're killing each other over little things. And we're ready to throw each other in jail for little things. Sometimes they don't even happen. Look at the Duke case just this past year. Something that didn't even happen. We're just because of a man's political career. He wants to indict these people. Uh, now, probably they deserved it anyway, but uh, <laughs> but not for the charges that were brought before them. People are mean to each other. They use each other. They're violent with each other. But in the communion. We're saying, okay, lay down your arms. We're going to be united. And we're learning, aren't we? So we discern the body of Christ. Notice, and we, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but in Romans 4, 11, this is E, it's a sign and a seal. And uh, we are told about Abraham that he, had, he was circumcised. It was a sign and it was a seal. It was a sign that it pointed to God uh, marking him out. It was a seal that it would be for him and the generations that would proceed, uh, that, that would succeed from him. So it both signified and sealed. And sacraments do that. They mark us out. Baptism marks you out. Communion marks you out again. You have the blood of Christ in your head again. Marked out. It's a sign and a seal. And then sixthly, it's an eschatological meal. Jesus says in, in Mark fourteen twenty five. That he will not eat of the, he will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when we drink it anew. What's he referring to? Well, I don't know for sure, but it sure sounds like Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So what you have is in communion, you not only have the past remembered, the present enjoyed in fellowship with Christ, but the future anticipated. We're waiting for the next cup. We take the cup today. We're waiting for the next cup. Next time, let me tell you, next time you drink wine with Jesus and see him uh, visibly, it'll be the, the entering the consummation of the kingdom, the fourth, the fourth cup. 
So communion has this eschatological sense to it. It's, a, it's an end times meal. It's, we're right on the edge of history waiting for his return. And the meal reminds us of that. It has an eschatological aspect to it. Now, are you thinking about these things when you go to communion? This is what we're supposed to think about. Now, secondly, important questions about communion. For whom is it intended? We've already mentioned it's for believers. Secondly, believers in good standing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourselves. So first of all, examine yourself. Be sure you be in Christ. Be sure you've given your life to him. Be sure you're not a Judas. Even be sure you're not a Peter for that matter. Uh, Be sure you're repentant. Be sure you have put your trust in him. And thirdly, believers in good standing together. That's the reason that typically, uh, especially in the Protestant world, we don't have what we call private communions. Why? Because the feast, it's a meal. It's meant to be a corporate meal. It's not something we just go off on our own individually and have with God. Now, if you're a shut-in, that's a different rule. But even when we take communion to shut-ins like we did this week, we take two or three people. There's a gathering. It's meant to be a communal meal. Now, thirdly, what benefits do we receive? Let's go through these quickly. The work of Christ is exhibited to us. When the bread is broken, be watching the liturgist. When he breaks the bread... That's to remind you the body of Christ was broken. When he pours the cup, you're to be reminded that the blood of Christ was shed for you. It's the work of Christ exhibited to us. Secondly, we are reminded of his love for us. He has pledged himself to us in the Lord's Supper. Just like he pledged himself to the Israelites in the Passover. You are my people. I delivered you. I delivered you for a purpose. I delivered you and I'll keep you through the generations. And he's saying the same thing to you as you come to have table fellowship. Thirdly, we experience his presence. I'd love to talk more about the real presence, but I I don't have time today. But we do experience his presence with us. And you'll notice in Luke 24 that the men on the road to Emmaus who didn't know who Jesus was, even though they were talking to him. You remember, it was in the breaking of the bread that they realized who he was. Now, that is told to us for a reason that you need the Lord's Supper. That in the breaking of the bread, you realize again the Lord's love for you and his presence with you. Fourthly, we profess our loyalty to him. So when you come to the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for you to profess your loyalty to God. The main thing is what he's professing to you. He's reminding you. It's primarily his fellowship with him. It's a fellowship with him and a reminder of his past love, his present love and his future love. But in a minor way, it's your opportunity to say, yes, Lord, I pledge myself to you again today. So if some Protestants have altar calls and people like to come several times in their lifetimes, look, you have one every time you have the Lord's Supper. It's an altar call. And you're pledging yourself to him. Fifthly, we are strengthened in our faith. We're encouraged by these reminders. We're encouraged by his presence. We're encouraged by his love. We're encouraged by looking ahead again into the future. The Lord's Supper is meant to strengthen our faith. Sixthly, we are bonded anew to each other. You can't come to the Lord's Supper and be holding something against a brother. Jesus says in Matthew 5, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother who has something against you. And those verses when we have the Eucharist are constantly before us. You can't be taking the bread and the cup and be ready to stab your brother in the back. Won't work. Not supposed to work. So the Lord's Supper keeps us reconciled and reminds us that we are bonded to each other. Seventhly, we distinguish ourselves from the unbelieving world through the Lord's Supper because only the disciples come. 
Now, how do we best partake? We're going to race through this in about a minute and a half. First, believe in Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. Just trust him. Just trust him. That's what's required. That's what you need to do. Put your life back into his hands at the Lord's Supper. Secondly, examine yourself. Don't spend the whole time examining yourself. That'd be a waste of time. You're not worth it. Uh, Spend most of your time examining Christ. Think about him. But spend a little time examining yourself so that you can come clean and thirdly repent. So you can repent intelligently. So examine yourself just enough to repent intelligently and repent with the view of Christ right before you. Fourthly, contemplate his person and work. Think about it. Roll it over in your mind. Contemplate it. Fifthly, thankfully rejoice in his presence. Lift up your hearts, we say. We lift them up into the Lord. Well, then lift them up. Don't be a liar. We say lift up your hearts and you say we lift them up, then lift them up. Get those hearts up. Be, rejo- be rejoicing and thankful. You can do it. You say, oh, my life's so miserable. Well, I know your life's miserable. So is Jesus' life miserable. Very miserable. And he thanked the Lord. You can do it too. And sixthly, resolve to obey him. You come every time and there's a new resolution to obey him. I know you're going to fail tomorrow. The Lord knows you're going to fail tonight. But you still resolve this morning. And you resolve tomorrow morning and the next morning and the next morning. You keep resolving by his grace. Seventhly, you anticipate his return, the next cup, when we see him again. You're waiting for that supper to turn into the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's what you're waiting for. Uh, eighthly, you are reconciled with your brethren. So when you come to the Lord's Supper, you don't have to leave the bread and the cup there and go. But here's what you must do. You must, drink the, uh, you must eat the bread, drink the cup, and resolve that day. You're going to solve this issue with your brother best that you can handle it. Lastly, Roman number four, Jesus celebrated the communion meal. He sang with his brothers and he went out with his brothers. The Hallels, uh, the Psalm 111 through 118 were the Hallels and they were sung during this time. And so we believe quite confidently Jesus went out singing from Psalm 118 uh, in his heart as they left communion. What a, what a Savior. Comes and Seals his own death, a gruesome death. This bread is my body, this cup is my blood. And he goes out singing. How does he do that? Because he's doing it for his father and because he's doing it for you and he loves you so much. He sings about it. It's an amazing thing. Let's pray. Father, cause us to sing too. For we belong to you and the greatest event in history has been accomplished with the resurrection. And we pray that no matter what our circumstances, we will come back to the table over and over again and enjoy your presence with us and your promises to us and the pledge of your everlasting love and be changed men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.